mark, um, but we're, we're nearly through for the summer in Mark, so we're about, you know, roughly a third of the way, uh, third of the way through. Um, and this week, we're picking up, as Deirdre read for us, at the end of Mark chapter 6. So we're going to finish Mark uh, chapter 6. But I think it's important, as we, as we prepare to kind of, to look at the end, just want to make sure that's off, yeah, as we prepare to, um, to look at kind of the, this end of the chapter 6, that we remember what, where we've been. <laughs> I think it's always important to put things, to couch things in, in the context of, of where we have been. So we're coming um, to an end of, of kind of a cycle um, that Mark has brought us on, where we've seen Jesus teaching and healing, teaching and healing, teaching and healing. Uh, and really, it's been something that he's been doing since the very beginning of the book, right? We've seen over and over that Jesus came teaching, and as he was teaching, he was also healing. And so um, we find, you know, as we go about that um, things, you know, we find crazy things such as, you know, Jesus. Um, yeah, and maybe, maybe it's good just to kind of sit with this for a moment because like, we can almost just say it. And I was just about to say it as if, like, it's no big deal. But as we walk through the Gospels, we see Jesus doing incredible things that if true, I mean, they're things that no other person could do, you know, like the healings that, that he does. A woman who had been bleeding for 12 years that people had tried to cure her, right? We just went through that here, uh, you know, where she touches him and is, and is healed. We see a little girl who was dead, raised to life. We see people who've been possessed by, by evil spirits, by demons, who, who are set free. People who were literally breaking chains because they had this like inhuman strength are being healed and set free. The broken are being made free. The sick are being healed. And this is exactly what Mark wants us to see because this is exactly what the Old Testament says that the Messiah would do. And this is what we've been seeing as we walk through. And I hope that you guys, as I know we've been walking through it bit by bit, maybe looking at it, you know, a week apart, but I hope you're, you, you find the wonder in this as well, that you see the wonder in this, that this is Jesus. This is what the Son of Man, what, what Mark calls in Mark 1.1, the Son of God. This is what he is like. And so now we come to this passage after Jesus has just fed 5,000 people. And we see Jesus walking on the water. And it was one of those, again, as I was studying it, um, I'm not sure I had the wonder at first. <laughs> you know, I'm just reading it, kind of going, yep, yeah, okay, and Jesus walked on the water. As if, like, that's just something, you know, I should just take for granted, move on. Like, yep, yeah, Jesus walked on water. It's like, Jesus walked on water, <laughs> guys. Like, we read in this passage that Jesus, it's not like, and this is something I think is, is, is important for us to see that like Mark has been showing us over and over that his statement that he makes in Mark chapter 1 verse 1 is not hyperbole, but fact. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that his gospel is the good news, Mark says, about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And that's what we've been seeing. You guys, Jesus walks on water. It's not hyperbole. It's not made up. It's not like Mark states it as fact. Um, there's a guy by the name of Richard Bauckham who writes books on, who wrote a book on the, 
supposed to be the reliability of the Gospels. And he looks at them and says, they are written like ancient biographies. Okay, so we've, we talked about last week a lot of symbolism that happens in the previous passage. We're going to read again about a lot of symbolism that happens in this passage. But I don't want us to miss this fact. Like a lot of people have come to this passage and said, well, people don't walk on water, so Jesus must not have walked on water. What happened? Or, you know, maybe that you know, was a trick, or maybe they really did see a ghost, or all of these things. No, Mark wants us to see and to believe that Jesus really did walk on water because he did what only the Son of God could do. And so, this story, and really just the story about Jesus, Jesus' life pointed to, sorry, it's a reality I, was, I wrote down here, that Jesus' life pointed to the life-changing significance, that there is life-changing significance for people who encounter Jesus. And so I hope throughout this series so far, you've been able to encounter Jesus as we've walked through this story, that there is life-changing significance when we truly encounter Jesus. The difficulties and the trials, and we're going to talk about this, the difficulties and the trials, they don't go away, they don't disappear, but they become a refining fire that leads us back to the feet of Jesus. To know Jesus and to find comfort and to find peace in Jesus because he is the Messiah, the promised one who came to set all things right. And this is, this is who we as Christians follow. Jesus' life brought, you know, is of life-changing significance for those of us who encounter Jesus. And so we come to our story, and we find this word immediately, and Mark loves this word immediately. I love that, like in the Gospel of Mark, you find the word immediately over and over and over and over again, because Mark just moves at a quick pace. He has so much he wants to pack into this Gospel and to share with us, and he begins by saying, immediately after this. Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and head across the lake to Bethsaida. Well, he sent the people home. After telling everyone goodbye, he went up to the hills by himself to pray. And then we're going to find, late that night, the disciples were in their boat in the middle of the lake. And Jesus was alone on land. He saw that they were in serious trouble, <clears throat> rowing hard and struggling against the wind and waves. <clears throat> About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. He intended to go past them, but when they saw him walking on the water, they cried out in terror, thinking he was a ghost. They were all terrified when they saw him. But Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage. I am here. Then he climbed into the boat, and the wind stopped. They were totally amazed, for they didn't understand the significance of the miracle of the loaves. Their hearts were too hard to take it in. We're just going to stop there. Maybe this is a story you guys have been familiar with. I mean, I feel like it's, it's one of, of the stories of Jesus. This is one that gets told in Sunday school. You know, this is one that, that as kids, maybe if you grew up in church, you, you heard, you, you know, um, whatever you're, you know, if you had any religious education, this is one of those stories. It's a crazy story. Now, what's interesting, this is just kind of a fun, fun aside, is, is if, if church history is correct in saying that Mark wrote down the sermons of Peter, 
I don't know if you notice, we find something omitted from this version of the story that we don't necessarily, you know, that we find in other versions of the story. And that's that Peter sinks after he goes out to Jesus <laughs> on the water. But we're going to leave that aside. We're going to ignore that because I think, I think there's plenty to talk about here. We don't have to go to the parallel passages and, uh, and talk about uh, Peter sinking as he walks out to meet Jesus on the water. But I just, one of those, I just find it interesting that if this is like, you know, kind of Peter's, you know, Peter's records, um, you know, how he preached... But this one, I mean, Peter often is, you know, he's not, he doesn't shy away from making himself look, uh, look silly or foolish sometimes. But I just thought it was interesting that some of the other Gospels include that. But this one, uh, this one does not. Um, but again, like I said, it's one of those stories I think many of us are familiar with. But maybe more as like a nice story about Jesus, right? Or an interesting, an interesting anecdote about about Jesus, or or maybe you've you know you've heard sermons preached about how Jesus is is with us in the storms of life, or you know that uh, you know we, you know like all of these kind of nice things or these nice platitudes, and they're not wrong, they're all right. This is certainly true, and we're going to get there. Actually, we will get there. But I think before we travel that road where we start saying, you know, Jesus is with us through the storms, or we start making this immediate application of like you know, how, you know, maybe just a comforting thought or, or something like that. I think there's something deeper and bigger than that. And so we need to talk for a moment about hyperlinks. You guys familiar with hyperlinks? Have you ever gone down the Wikipedia black hole that is hyperlinks, right? It's one of those, you know, you find yourself reading one Wikipedia article and then it has, you see that little blue word and you're like, wonder what that means. You know, you click it, and the next thing you know, you're onto another page, and then there's another hyperlink there, and you find it interesting, and it's like, yeah, it's like the, the Wikipedia black hole. Maybe, maybe you guys don't fall, uh, fall prey to that, but I know I can, be, uh, I can definitely be guilty uh, of that. And so, uh, so, yeah, think about a Wikipedia page. Think about hyperlinks, right? And so the Bible is full of hyperlinks. And this is one of those things, I think, you know, the Bible isn't one of the most incredible, like it is the most incredible book. Why did I say one of? It is the most incredible collection of books ever written. Like the fact that there could be like thousands of years in between the first book and the last book, and they could still be so intertwined with one another, so connected and consistent with one another is incredible. And so we find throughout the New Testament, and even in the Old Testament all the time, hyperlinks that take us back to maybe Genesis chapter 1. Or, you know, we talked about last week, the hyperlinks. You know, we went through, I didn't talk about hyperlinks, but really, I mean, we went through that. Like how, how the feeding of the 5,000 shows us how Jesus is a better Moses, how Jesus is a better Elisha, how Jesus is a better Elijah. It points us back to those stories. And it says, remember those stories? See how Jesus is even better. Right? This is what the hyperlinks do. They take us to something of interesting relevance to whatever we're currently looking at. The Bible's full of these, and they're intentionally there to help us understand more deeply what is happening. Now, that isn't to say that if you don't know the Bible like the back of your hand, that you can't understand what the text is saying. Right? I think we can read this story and in many ways, we can get the gist of the story, right? We can read the Gospels, and we can get the gist of the Gospel, right? What, you know, who Jesus is, what he's like, we can get that, 
right? We can read it and walk away compelled by Jesus and not know anything, never click on any of the hyperlinks. But I think it helps. Like, it's one of the beauties of the Bible is that we will never, ever exhaust the depths of Scripture. We will never get down to the Mariana Trench <laughs> of Scripture and finally say, there, I've seen it all, I know it all. Like, that will never happen. There will always be stuff as we come to the Bible new to learn and new to see. And it's one of the most incredible things about the Bible, I think. So here's what we're going to do. The first thing we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to take a journey through a couple of verses, just 48 to 50. We're going to sit in verses 48 to 50, and we're going to take a journey back <laughs> to the depths of the ocean, I guess. I don't know. Put on your wetsuit. Is that what I should say? <laughs> like, you know, because we're going to dive in, right? And we're, we're going to walk through this because, and this is, this is, again, see it for what it is. I know for some of you this may not be the most exciting thing in the world, but I want to help you see why this is beautiful because we get a picture of Jesus that is bigger here than maybe we thought. We get a picture of what, what Jesus was communicating in this event, what Jesus was, was doing. Because let's be honest, when we come to a passage where it says Jesus intended to walk past them, but they saw him, we go like, what, did Jesus really, like, was he just like, going to be like, see you later, guys? Like, <laughs> I'll meet you on the other side. Like, just leave them drifting at sea. Like, what's going on there? And that's what I want to help us to walk through. All right, so we're going we're gonna to walk through verses 48 to 50, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna see, some, I think, some interesting things. Because here's, if we think back to last week, Jesus may be like Moses and Elijah, but what we see in this passage is that he is far, far greater than either of them. Mark takes us back to their stories again, but this time we see Jesus from a different angle, right? Because before, when we looked at the stories, it showed us how Jesus is like Moses, but better. How Jesus is like Elijah, but better. How Jesus is like Elisha, but better. But here, Mark takes the story from a different angle, and he's, he wants to show us a different side to Jesus. In verse 48, we read this sentence. He intended to go past them. He saw, or sorry, I'll read the whole, the whole verse. He saw that they were in serious trouble, rowing hard and struggling against the wind and waves. At about three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them, walking on the water. Sorry, I guess it's, it's at 49. But when he saw them walking on, or sorry, where am I looking at? Yeah, Jesus came towards them. Uh, did I read? Jesus came towards them walking on the water. He intended to go past them. I must have read that and then like didn't realize I read it. It happens. <laughs> All right. So, he intended to go past them. Or, if you're reading in the New American Standard or the ESV or as Deirdre read for us in the King James, what you're going to read is Something that says, and I think this is actually better. This is a better translation in this, at this point than the New Living Translation. He intended to pass by them. He intended to pass by them. Now, what does that mean? People have debated. 
People have argued about what it means when, Je- when it says that Jesus intended to pass by them. Some people think Jesus just wanted to leave them out on the boat and then he was going to meet them on the other side, you know, and when they got there, say, hey guys, what took you so long? You know, it's like kind of Jesus' big joke, like, hey, you know, I can cross the sea, you know, or something like that. You know, I mean, people have come up with all kinds of ideas. But I think if we click on the hyperlink, <laughs> we get a really interesting picture And it's this. This is more than Jesus just being bad at hide-and-seek. Jesus wants to be seen. He wants to be seen. All right? Now, walk with me. We're going to go back to the story of Elijah again. All right? But we're in a different part of the story. The story of Elijah is pretty long. Okay? So 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 11 to 13. All right? Now, this phrase, pass by them. I want you to keep your ears open for that phrase. Listen for that phrase. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. So Elijah is is going up on the mountain and God says he's going to show himself to him. So the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. All right, so we find Elijah on a mountain. And what happens? The Lord passed by. (coughs) Now, let's leave Elijah aside and let's go talk about Moses again. All right? In Exodus chapter 33, verses 19 to 23, we find God saying, telling Moses, go up on the mountain. I want to reveal myself to you. And the Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will call out my name, Yahweh, before you. For I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. But you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. The Lord continued, Look, stand near me on this rock, as my glorious presence passes by. I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and let you see me from behind. But my face will not be seen. And then as we come to that passage that we walked through very slowly for many weeks in Exodus 34, verses 5 to 7, we read, Then the Lord came down, so this is still the same story, Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him. And he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to, the thousand, to, to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children to the third and fourth generations. Now, you remember, we walked, we walked through that. And now, so we've, we've read before how Moses, how God revealed himself to Moses. He passed by. How he revealed himself to Elijah. He passed by. 
And then we come back to verse 48, and it says, He intended to pass by them. I think this is significant, guys. I think this is significant. This is more than just, again, Jesus being bad at hide and seek. This is Jesus wanting to reveal himself to his disciples. This is a moment of of epiphany. They were to see Jesus for who he is as he passed by them. People don't walk on water. You know, and before it says that they didn't understand what happened with the bread. I mean, like people, like they were watching all of this happen. And we'll, we'll come back to that, the disciples not understanding. But I think this is a moment where Jesus is trying to show them, to, to convey to them who he is. He passed by them. And if we keep going into verse 50, I'll, I'll read 49 and 50. But when they saw him walking on the water, they cried out in terror, thinking he was a ghost. They were all terrified when they saw him. But Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage. I am here. So the New Living says, don't be afraid, he said. Take courage. I am here. Now again, if you're reading in a different translation, like the ESV, I think, again, it's a bit more, it it helps us out a bit. Because it's a bit closer to the direct translation. And sometimes with a hyperlink, that's really important. (laughs) We need to be closer to what it directly says Uh, to be able to see the hyperlink. Because what it says in the Greek is take courage, ego emi, or it is I. Do not be afraid. We're meant to see Jesus, I think, speaking the way that God speaks of himself. That phrase in the Greek, ego emi, That is the same in the Old Testament in translations. For I am. Later, we'll find Jesus, right? When he stands before uh, on trial, they'll ask Jesus a question and he will say, I am. And they pick up the stone, like they're ready to kill him right then. Need we say any more, execute him. This is a loaded phrase when he says, take courage, it is I so again, if we go back to the story of Moses, we think of, ex- of, of uh, again, in Exodus, when we find when Moses first meets God, Yahweh, it says, God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. If you're reading this in the Greek translation that uh, you know, people in Jesus' day would have been reading, the Septuagint is what it was called, you will find that phrase, ego emi. In Isaiah 43, 25, we find this, God saying this, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. In 48, 12 of Isaiah, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called, I am he. I am the first and I am the last. Now, does that sound familiar? Maybe Revelation? (laughs) Uh, I am the first and the last. Isaiah chapter, that's a hyperlink we won't travel um, at the moment. Uh, But Isaiah 51, verses 12 to 13. And if actually you read Isaiah 51 uh, in its bigger context, I think this story really kind of points a lot. uh, There's a lot of parallels. 
But what we find in Isaiah 51 is God saying, I, I am he, and again, this is all ego, ego and me. I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? Again, we find Jesus using this statement that God uses for himself, ego and me. And I think what we find is that God cannot be fully seen, but Jesus can. And this, I think, is the beauty of the incarnation. It is God becoming flesh. It is God who tabernacles, as John will say in John chapter 1, with us. The Word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt with us. Again, another hyperlink we're not going to follow. But God takes on flesh so that he may be more fully known and seen. We see the fullness of God. Paul says that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. The one who comes to them on the sea is not simply a successor to Moses who fills baskets with bread in the desert. He is more than Elisha who multiplies food. He is more than Elijah who takes the widow's nothing and makes it something. Only God can walk on the sea. And this is where we come to the last hyperlink. I think I want, I want us to find it in verse 48. Maybe you didn't know all these were here. This is like, it's one of those like fascinating discoveries when you study a text. I don't know. I just get like, all like wow, I had no idea. Uh, so verse 48. And when you travel, you're like, how did I never see this before? Right? It says, he saw that they were in serious trouble, rowing hard and struggling against the wind and the waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them, walking on the water. So far, somehow we've bypassed that you know, up until now. Walking on the water. Jesus came toward them, walking on the water. Now, we've said already that this pass by them is the same language that is used often of like an epiphany, those moments where God appears to someone. We also find then that this ego and me, this statement, I am, is again something that over and over in the Old Testament, we find God, the language that God uses as he speaks to the people. And now we find Jesus walking on the water. Jesus treads the waves, which is something only God can do. In Job chapter 9, verse 8, Job is responding to his friends. Uh, if you've ever read the book of Job, um, it's, it's a difficult one. Um, let's be honest. It's, it's a, it's a, but you know what? I think it's one of those in crisis and times of trouble. It's a very comforting book. Because again, I'm just going to say that the theme of Job, the point of Job, is that God does not work on the do good, get good principle. That's not how it works with God. It's not like, well, you be a good person and God will do good things for you. That's not how God works. And I think the book of Job is teaching us that lesson clearly. Because it clearly says that Job didn't do anything wrong, right? Um, and bad things do happen to good people, right? That's, I mean, it's, it, I think it, it bears that reality. But yet here we find Job then speaking to his friends about the character of God, about what God is like. And he says in Job verse nine, eight, or chapter 9, verse 8, He alone has spread out the heavens and marches 
on the waves of the sea. He alone can do that. You probably don't remember back to our series on Habakkuk. That's been a while. Maybe you remember some things, but probably not Habakkuk 3, verse 15. But again here, it becomes significant. I think we have a hyperlink here where it's in Habakkuk. He says, you trampled the sea with your horses, speaking of God, and the mighty waters piled high. We find this image of God trampling the sea. And I think it conveys to us his power to control the seas, to control the chaos. And if God can do that, then in Habakkuk, I think, what he's saying is if God can do that, then he can save his people, Israel. That if God can tread the seas, if he can walk on the water, if he can do those things, then he can save his people, Israel. Now, for a moment, we just need to talk about water. Okay? The people in, in Jesus' day, at least especially in Palestine, did not view water in the same way, you know, maybe uh, you know, the Irish surrounded by water do. Right? Okay? So Israel, at times, had some border on the sea, but for most of its time was pretty landlocked. Right? And uh, the Israelites were not known as seafaring people. Um, they stayed out of the sea. And even there, it wasn't just the Israelites, but people in that day, especially those uh, who were very superstitious uh, as well, would have viewed the sea as a place of chaos, right? Is it a place that humans can really take control of? Or do people get into boats and they're kind of at the whim and of the weather? And so it became a symbol for chaos, that which human beings cannot control. <coughs> Sorry about that. And so water came to symbolize chaos. Even if we go back to Genesis chapter 1, right, we find in, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the earth was formless and empty, or tohu vavohu, wild and waste. It has this uh, idea with, these, with these, this word pairing of, again, chaos. The world was not ordered. And darkness covered the deep Waters. Again, you could translate that deep waters, uh, thinking of it in imagery as like chaotic waters. Darkness covered over the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So even back in Genesis 1, what we find, one of the cool, I think, things that we see in Genesis chapter 1, that sometimes we get distracted um, by things like how old the earth is or whether it's six literal days, all those things. I think one of the cool things, and I'm not saying and none of that is important, I'm just saying, I think one of the cool things in that text is that we see God takes chaos and makes order. God hovers over the waters. The Spirit of God hovers over the waters and brings order out of chaos. Only God has the power to order and to tame the chaos. And here we find chaotic waters where the people, where the disciples are out in a boat, right? And it's, it's a bad storm. Now, unlike the passage where Jesus, you know, where they're like, Jesus, we're going to die, you know, and they're like panicking. We just find them like rowing, 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 and they're getting nowhere. And in fact, we find that they've gone completely off course, right? Because even after Jesus stills the water, like they intended to go to Bethsaida, and they ended up in, where is it, Gennesaret. 
Now, if you get out your, you know, if you have Bible maps in the back of your Bible or something like that, and you see the Sea of Galilee, you'll see they're not really very close to each other. They're kind of like, you know, like if you're thinking of like the Sea of Galilee on like, you know, as if it was a clock, you know, it's like, you know, uh, like Bethsaida is like at uh, nine o'clock and they end up at midnight, I guess, you know, is that like they end up at 12, you know, so it's like, I mean, like they're, they go pretty far off course, right? These waters are chaotic. These waters leave them disoriented. These waters leave them not knowing which direction they're going. These waters leave them rowing and rowing and rowing and feeling exhausted and not knowing where they are. They're not about to die. They're just lost. They're tired. They're exhausted. And this is where Jesus meets them. He walks across these chaotic waters, these waters where they don't know where they are, these waters of confusion, these waters of exhaustion, of tiredness. He walks across them as if they're nothing. As if he is the one who has control over them. As if they're no big deal to him. And you can imagine why it might freak somebody out when they see somebody walking across the sea. And Jesus says, take heart. Don't fear. I'm here. And he gets into the boat. And the seas calm. Jesus here takes these chaotic waters and calms them. And brings them back in to order. All right, so what we've seen so far, right? We've seen that Jesus intended to pass by them, to show them, to reveal to them who he was. That he used those words, ego and me, I am, when he met them. Take courage, it is I. And we find Jesus walking on the water, treading the waves, that as Job says, only God can do. And as we see in Habakkuk and Genesis, God taming the chaotic waters, he is the one who can rescue the people from the chaos and the disorientation that the world brings. We see something incredible. Jesus is saying more than just, I'll calm the storms in your life. He is telling you that he is the one who has the power to do it. All along, from chapter 1, verse 1 of Mark, where he says this is about the Messiah, the Son of God, Mark has been answering the question, who is this man? And we see clearly here who Jesus is. All right, well, we've done the hard work. Take a breath. <laughs> we walked through a whole lot of scripture, a whole lot of stories. We went from Genesis through Habakkuk and back to Mark. All right? And now it was, I think hopefully we start to see this passage as bigger than maybe we've ever seen it before, maybe fuller and richer than we've ever seen it before. We can start asking the question then, what do we learn about ourselves here? Right? Because I don't think any of us would be tempted to put ourselves in the place of Jesus you know, like, like in the story, right? No, instead I think we probably identify more with the, uh, with the disciples. At least I hope so. Look, if you're identifying with Jesus here, like, come talk to me after the service because we've got... Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't think I'll be able to help you. We'll, but we'll get you help. No. Um, anyway, we need to talk about what we learn about ourselves. I don't know. Like, do you guys feel like the disciples sometimes? I mean, let's be honest. I know I do. 
rowing furiously through this life? You know, not knowing what's going to happen? You know, we were talking earlier, uh, you know, Rob and, and Meryl, about, you know, just that feeling of kind of like feeling like, well, maybe the door is open here and trying to go through it, and then it, like, it just shuts itself. And you're like, well, I don't understand. <laughs> where, where are you? I'm out here rowing and rowing and rowing, and I have no idea where I'm going. I'm lost. Why did you have to stay back and pray? Where are you? Why didn't you get in the boat with us? Maybe you, you felt like that, rowing furiously against the wind, but getting nowhere. Maybe you feel like God isn't with you at all. You know, maybe you're in that place, or maybe you've been in that place. That, I don't know what, what some of the early church you know, called like the dark night of the soul. I think it's St. John of the Cross referred to it as, as the dark night of the soul, where it just feels like God is absent. Where you feel like you're out in the middle of the sea and you're like, I, I feel alone. I feel like I'm rowing and getting nowhere. If we're honest, we all have those times. We all will have those seasons if we're not having it right now. We've either had it or we will have it. It's just the reality of, of life in a world that is still broken. Where there is still injustice. There are many storms in this life. And some of them, like, again, if I'm thinking about my own life, some of them, some of those storms have been of my own making. They have been, but not all of them. There's been a whole lot of storms in my life that have had nothing to do with me. They've not been my fault. And I think we all experience this. And we row furiously trying to find our way through them whether they're of our own making, storms of our own making, or whether they're storms that were just thrust upon us. We did nothing wrong. We didn't ask for it. We are simply victims of chaos that comes with the sin and brokenness of this world. And so I think we can, we can identify with the disciples here. One commentator says it this way. The disciples here are blind to the presence of God and his care for men, to the full glory of the revelation of God in the face of Christ. And I think even after Jesus gets in the boat, that's what we see. They're still, they're still pretty confused. They're glad, I mean, I think they're, they're terrified, but they're pretty glad Jesus is there, I'd say. But it says their hearts were hardened. It's just like they didn't understand the, what happened with the loaves. <laughs> They didn't get what was happening right then and there. And maybe that's like you and I too. Sometimes even when, when the difficulties of life end, you know, maybe God brings us through. Sometimes we're still left confused, not understanding why that just happened, not understanding what's going on. We're left reeling, kind of going like, I don't get what this was all about. And I think the reality is sometimes, like nowhere in the Bible does it say, well, give it a week or two, and then you'll understand. <laughs> Chapter and verse. It doesn't say that. Sometimes we may not see why. We may not see why. But the promise of Romans says that God can use it for good, for those who love him, that even the worst things that happen to us, and it doesn't mean that that thing is good. It never makes that thing good. But it means that God can pick up the pieces and bring us, maybe not to where we intended to go, 
but bring us to a place where he can still use us. And so the disciples struggle to understand what, everything that's just happened. And again, I think we can relate to that. And so it made me think then, how can we make sure, or do our best to make sure, that when these times come, these times when we feel absent, when God feels absent, these times where we struggle with doubt, these times where it just feels like I don't understand what is happening in my life right now, how can we make sure that we position ourselves to be in the best place to endure those times, right? To get through those times, to get through the difficulty, how can we make sure that we can be confident that God is with us even when we don't feel it? I think the answer comes back to the beginning of our passage. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get into the boat and head across the lake to Bethsaida. While he sent the people home, after telling everyone goodbye, he went up to the hills by himself to pray. We've seen Jesus do this before, right? We talked about this before, that Jesus went up with, and by himself and prayed, right? At one point, you know, the disciples go finding him. You know, they're like, Jesus, where have you been? You know, and like, you know, he went out early in the morning, went up to pray, spend time with the Father. We find that, that Jesus, you know, before, like he wanted to get away before and the people followed him and he wasn't able to. And here he finally, he takes the time, he gets away and spends time with the Father. And you know what? Even there, just before the cross in the garden, we find Jesus going off by himself to pray, to spend time with the Father. So it's, I, think, I think we can say it was a habit of Jesus. It was something that he made a regular part of his life. And if Jesus needed to take time away in silence, away from distraction and in prayer, so do you. So do I. This is something we need to make part of our lives. To try our best to find those times. And like, you know, like we talked about last week, there are going to be those times and those seasons of life where it's like nigh impossible. It's just not, it's not going to happen. Like I remember my mom saying when, when we were little that she used to sometimes just go into the bathroom, lock the door and sit in the bathtub so that she could get like some silence. <laughs> my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And I think like that is a job that is probably the most underrated job like ever uh, <laughs> because I can only imagine how wild me and my brother and sister were around, around our house. And it wasn't a big house. And so, yeah, my mom, to get, to get away, you know, had to lock herself in the bathroom and sit in the bathtub just so she could, like, take a deep breath and, like, calm down. You know, and, and, and I'm not going to say I've never been tempted in my house to do things like that. And I'm not a, you know, I don't stay at home. Uh, so, like, what I'm saying is, I understand, I get it, sometimes it's difficult. Okay, sometimes it's impossible. But it's something we need to at least try, I think, to make a habit in our life of saying, I need to spend time getting to know the Father. Getting to know the heart of the Father. And it's not just reading facts, but spending time, both speaking and listening, sharing our hearts with God. You know, again, we read the Psalms, 
But so many of the Psalms are so brutally honest that they're nearly uncomfortable to read. You almost think like, I, I don't know, there's been times where I've left almost saying like, can he really say that to God? And yet like, yes, the answer is yes. God gives us the language of prayer that says, you can come to me and, and, and speak freely and I will listen. And God responds and God speaks back. And again, I'm not saying necessarily you'll get an audible voice of God. Maybe you will, I don't know. But I, I, like, in my experience, it hasn't been my experience, but there are times where it's like you spend that time with God and you feel the spirit moving and leading and guiding. And it's like, and, and if I'm just like constantly busy, 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 distracted, 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 it's like I'm never going to be able to listen to, you know, Elijah. Let's go back to his story. God is not in the storm. God is not in the earthquake. God is not in the wind. It's a still small voice. It's a whisper. And so I need to be able to get away like Jesus and to center on him, on God, and to fix, our eye, fix my eyes on Jesus. This world is going to throw a lot at us. And I'm not making some like, you know, cultural observation. I don't care where you live. This world is going to throw a lot at, at you. It has for all of eternity or for all of history. I suppose from Genesis chapter three, <laughs> this world is going to throw a lot at you. And we need to center ourselves on God, fix our eyes on Jesus. Now here's my cultural observation. We live in a world that is consumed by distraction. It's hard. It's not easy. Most of us have a, a, you know, a, a permanent distraction that we keep in our pockets or in your purse or where, you know, wherever you keep your phone. Right? And if it's not that, it's going to be something else. The moment we try and focus on something, it's like, you know, I was a squirrel. You know, like there's, there's something, you know, like it's, it's always something. We live in a world of distraction. And it's a world that will distract us into oblivion. Our world is more and more becoming a place where we can't focus and pay attention on anything, to anything. Do you realize this? Like they say like people's attention spans now are less than they have ever been since any scientist has ever thought to even look at that idea. Right? And in this world, I mean, it's just kind of how it is. Like, as Christians, we need to learn to be people who can focus. And we got to cultivate that habit of being like Jesus by being with Jesus. He's calling us to find peace in knowing and trusting him. And that, I think, is a difficult thing to do sometimes in the storms of this life, to find peace. The disciples don't find it at this moment. They don't. They leave more confused than they ever were. They leave, you know, it says their hearts were hardened. They, like, they, they didn't understand what was going on. And so if you've been there, if you've ever been in that place, like, look, that's okay. So were they. <laughs> their spiritual walk is, is that. It's a walk. It's a journey. And I know that's like the, the thing to say, you know, call everything a journey, to refer to everything as a journey or whatever. But it is. Like it is, I am not in the same place I was 10 years ago, and thank God for that. You know? 
And so the same is true of the disciples, right? What do we see the disciples doing five years from this point? You know, not even that. What do we see them doing a year from, a year from this point? We find Acts chapter 2, we find Peter standing up and proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. And 3,000 people have their lives changed. And then what happens to most of the disciples? They end up dead. But they died with the peace of knowing Christ as Lord. And he was more than worth it. We read, in, in, again in Acts, we find the disciples standing you know, standing trial. And they're told, stop speaking about Jesus. And I'm paraphrasing, but basically they say, yeah, go ahead and try and stop us. Because I'm not, my mouth won't shut. Right? There's a growth there. <laughs> and so if you're in like the place right now where the disciples are, like, take heart, take courage. <laughs> we read last week, Jesus takes our little and he'll make it enough. And as we spend time with him, we learn to be like him, to know and to trust him. And so following Jesus does not mean we won't face troubles or have times when Jesus feels absent. Jesus does not rescue the disciples out of the sea, but he enables them to continue the voyage. And I think that's what, that's what Jesus does for us too. Like, look, he may not take away your trouble, your problems, he might, thank God if he does, but he might not. He doesn't hear. They're still out at sea and they still have to row. <laughs> he enables them to continue the voyage. Now, we read the end of chapter six as well. And I don't have time to really say much about it. All right? And maybe that's a flaw. Maybe, I, maybe we should have saved it for next week or something like that. But Luke is preparing next week and he's not here, so... We're going to cover it really briefly. But here's what I was thinking as I was thinking about the end of this chapter. At the end of Mark 6, we find you know, that they've made this mistake. They meant to go to Bethsaida, but they end up at Gennesaret. They get out of the boat. And they find a whole lot of people who are all suffering, who all have pain, who all have things going on in their lives, difficulties and troubles. This isn't where they intended to go, but this is where they ended up. These people who are, in their own sense, adrift at sea. They're broken. Whether that's, you know, some sort of ailment, physical, spiritual, whatever it may be, they're coming to Jesus. And they're not full of understanding, but they're desperate to be made well. They're desperate to find peace. And so, with a little bit of faith that they have, they reach out, just like that woman who was bleeding a couple, a couple weeks ago. And they touch the hem of his garment. And like that woman, they too are made well. Now, life may take you on, on journeys that you didn't intend to go. Places that you didn't mean to go. But there are people that are hurting. And you and I get to mediate, in a way, Jesus to those people. Embrace that. I think embrace that. Your circumstances. And see it as an opportunity to share Jesus with people you might not have been able to. Able to know beforehand. 
They reach for the hem of his garment and are made well. Jesus comes to this place as a bringer of peace. Now, here's where we're going to finish. In Mark 14, we see Jesus again. And I, I alluded to this already. Use that phrase, ego and me. When he stands trial, he speaks to the religious leaders and he says, I am, ego and me. And you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. That is a reference to Daniel chapter 7 if you want that hyperlink. But here's what I think. There will be trials in this world. And as we read Mark 14, Jesus was about to be crucified. Pretty big trial, right? (laughs) But the promise is that Jesus will return. And this again, coming from Daniel chapter 7, that he will return and take up his rightful place as king over all creation. Jesus, who had power over the waves, Jesus, who could walk on water, will return and bring all things under his lordship He will rule with peace. As Mark says in chapter 1, verse 1, this is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. He cares for you, and he is calling all of us to know him, to be like him, to be and to live in relationship with him. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you.